Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It's the Autosport Podcast. We preview the Le Mans 24 hours with former Audi works driver turned LMP2 ace Oliver Jarvis and factory Ford driver Harry Tinkman. It's that time of year again. The Le Mans 24 hours is almost upon us. So without further ado, we'll get on with having a look ahead to the race with, we couldn't quite fit all 180 drivers in here, but we've got a couple of, uh, of the British drivers and we may also have hopefully one big name on the phone later on. So my name is Ed Straw, the editor-in-chief of Autosport. Joining me first, we'll go for the non-driver first. Well, he's an amateur driver, but can we call you the doyen of sports car racing journalism yet? I don't actually know what that means, so well, uh, you probably are, not. Well, you are Gary Watkins, and that, I am, that has all sorts of meanings in the world of sports car journalism. Thank you very much for inviting me. We're also joined by Oliver Jarvis, LMP2 driver this year, former Audi factory driver driving for the Jackie Chan DC Racing operation run by Jota Sport in P2. So, Ollie, this is a bit of a change for you, isn't it, this year? You're, you're in P2 rather than P1. Yeah, a big difference from, uh, from last year, but absolutely relishing the opportunity to go out and, and fight for a win in the P2 class. Certainly beat your record of constantly finishing third. That seems to be the thing you do. I certainly hope so. <laughs> and we're also joined by Harry Tinknell. Now, he has the distinction of covering almost all the class bases, having raced in P2 and 1 for Jota a few years ago. 
driven rather than maybe race you'd probably say an LMP1 having been part of the Nissan project and now in GT Pro with the Ganassi Ford team so Harry I guess you've had the the full gamut of Le Mans experiences you've had one great race there some difficult years all sorts of different cars yeah yeah of, of course I mean to go there first year and win was fantastic I remember the Jota team saying to me afterwards you're supposed to come and have the pain of Le Mans for the first four or five years before you win not just coming the first year and win so I've kind of done it the other way around I've had a good result the first year and then uh, last two years unfortunately not being quite so strong sort of being out the race before it's really even started but uh, we're coming back this year and hoping for a, for a stronger one. So let's start off with why Le Mans is so special for for everyone I guess it's the focal point of the year for for everyone even for Gary as a journalist. Yeah I think it's really difficult to describe the feeling and you quite often get asked you know now with the the WEC world championship status is that more important than Le Mans and I think last year I really realized heading on the train by the excitement I felt by arriving in Le Mans, how important it is. It's, it's iconic. You get there. There's no other track for me in the world like it. And I just love driving that circuit. It's very easy to say that, but we really do. It's an incredible circuit and the race itself is, is amazing. And to be part of it's a privilege, but to be able to stand on that podium and look out over you know, tens of thousands of people come Sunday afternoon is something incredibly special. I just think it's amazing when you talk to rookies, maybe guys coming from Formula One or whatever, you know, maybe we'll have Alonso there and he he will say this. But they get they I think people don't appreciate what Le Mans is and what it means until you actually go there and experience it. Because because it's not like a Grand Prix, is it? It's got a completely different atmosphere. The track's completely different. Uh, I just think uh, people are sort of bowled over by it when they go for the first time. I'm sure you felt the same, Harry. You you can't quite comprehend it yeah, until you go. Absolutely. I, I remember the the first year Jota um organized a, a talk for us out in one of the campsites and uh we went out there on the Friday morning and I just couldn't believe just how far these tents and cars spans around you know around the outside of the circuit it just the expanse of it was just incredible and you know drivers parade friday afternoon you feel like a, a superstar maybe a hundred thousand people lining the streets it's not that's not like a, a normal six hours of spa or silverstone and even on the test day on the weekend you know the, the hordes of fans queuing by the entrance to the paddock for autographs and photos is is incredible the buzz around the place is amazing and as you mentioned, all three of you were at the circuit for the pre-event test day. So Gary, perhaps you can give us a little bit of an overview of what we saw in the test day in terms of the overall battle in LMP1. It looks like Toyota's in a very good position, having comfortably topped the timesheets. But as we've seen before, that can be misleading. Well, I think the, the most amazing thing for me was the, the lap times and how quick they were. Don't forget that we've got new aero rules for this year that have been conceived to keep a cap on lap times. Well, they don't seem to be doing the job. Because well, looking at it, last year's poll was a 319.733. And on the test day, Kobayashi did a 318.132. Yeah, exactly. So Toyota are predicting that the poll record, Yanni's poll record from two years ago, from uh, 15, which is a 16.8, will be beaten. And if we, we know how the track evolves, don't we? And how, as it rubbers up, it gets quicker that you know i'm i'm convinced that if if it stays dry and if the the teams go go for qualifying runs that we will see the 16 beaten and i think a 15 is possible would you would you think so ollie yeah definitely looking at the the times from the test we always expect track evolution of probably 2 to 3 seconds which which sounds a lot but you know somewhere like le mans where the tracks not used for the majority of the year 
it really does rubber in throughout the the test days. So, you know, I wouldn't be surprised to see high 15s, especially when they go full qualifying spec, you know, um, turn the, the hybrids up and new tyres, low fuel. I don't see why not. So it's incredible to see the progress the, the LMP1s make every year. Um, different to the LMP2s where they, they, they try to, uh, you know, they've tried to increase the speeds. LMP1 every year, they, they peg them back. But unbelievably, the aerodynamicists and the engineers seem to, to claw that back one way or another. So in this Porsche versus Toyota battle, is everyone expecting Toyota finally to win it? Or is it just the law that it's Le Mans and Toyota will get ever closer, but never quite get across the line at the right time? Well, I, I think Toyota have, have become the favourites after the weekend. For me, the information we had from the Monza wet test and from the first couple of races that we were sort of thinking, yes, they are probably favourites. I think the events of the weekend reinforced that it's not so much the time Kobayashi did rather the uh, 319.2 only a second slower that Boemi did on a a race run I'm told uh, I understand that it was on sort of a pretty high fuel load so that's an impressive lap I'm sure you'd agree Ollie yeah very impressive but sometimes Le Mans such a special place that you can actually do your qualifying lap in a long run just because you know you got in the rhythm you get a, tra- a lap with no traffic and, you know, you just get it absolutely perfect. And really in Le Mans, the key is to get in that lap without traffic. You look down the times and then gaps of two to three seconds, which, you know, seems a lot. The problem is in the whole day, it can be you don't get a single lap without traffic. So it's about making the most of that one lap. I have to say from, from Silverstone, I thought Porsche would still be favourites just because of how close they were in the race. For me, I've got to say after the test day and what we've seen so far, Toyota definitely have to be favourites now and, and this must be their year to go and win it. Um, you know, the heartbreak of last year, I certainly feel that, you know, this is their biggest opportunity yet. I was talking to Pascal Vassal on uh, Toyota Motorsports technical director and he, he was saying that uh, if he says if there's a god of motor racing, he, he, he doesn't favour um, Toyota. So maybe, uh, maybe their ill luck will strike them again. I don't think anyone would begrudge to win it, especially the car from last year. Um, I've mentioned already, I, I walked down the pit lane to see them on the way to the podium, probably the, the strangest podium I've ever been on, and to see Davidson and that, they were just absolutely gutted. So um, I think, you know, if they did go out and win it, I think the whole paddock would, would be there and cheering them on, and, and they fully deserve it. It was particularly kind of you, Ollie, to have nicked the podium off them, not even allowing them to be uh, <laughs> to be on the second step because they didn't complete the distance. That definitely wasn't down to us drivers. Uh, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I, I would have happily given up that podium to see them stand on the top step. You always want to be on the podium at Le Mans, but, but nobody wants to see what they went through because we understand as drivers what it takes to be, be at Le Mans to, to race at the front, let alone to be in the lead for 23 hours and 50 four minutes as it was so yeah it wasn't the greatest feeling being on the podium but hopefully they can put that right this year can i just just talk about the little uh, uh reason why they didn't get on the podium was because even though they completed more laps than the second and third place cars the, the uh the the toyota was excluded because its uh, final lap was outside the maximum that maximum was set after a certain Audi driver by the name of Emanuele Pirro went round on the um, pit lane speed limiter so he could literally stand out of the car waving. And uh, I think his last lap in 2002 was 
nigh on 10 minutes. The ACO got a bit stroppy about that and introduced this rule. And on the basis of that, Audi maintains their record of finishing on the podium every year of their uh, Le Mans uh, campaign from all the way back to 1999. Made for a good photo, though, isn't it? Not very easy to do now with the, with the regs the way they are. In the, yeah. You wouldn't be able to get out. <laughs> Obviously, there aren't open cars. But even even in the final uh, open cars, I don't think you could get, because of the side uh, impact, you couldn't. If you got out, I'm not sure you'd get back in. Yes. Um, right. Quite honestly. So I think that there might be a bigger issue in the fact that you might not actually finish the race. Yeah, quite. One for Harry and Ollie. When you're racing at Le Mans, not in a P1 car, how much does the battle at the front of the race show up on your radar? Are the, are the P1 cars just a just a nuisance when they come around to, to lap you? Or are you kind of interested in what's going on up front? Or is it just 100% focus on your, on your own race? Do you know, a lot of people ask me, uh, it must be a nightmare when the LMP1s come past you. But actually, they, they're so quick and they accelerate so fast off the corner. But the time you've seen them on, the, on your radar screen, on the, on, the, on the dash that all the GT cars have... Uh, they're already past you and gone. So they're not a nuisance at all. Cornering speeds are fairly similar, believe it or not. So actually, they're gone before you even realise. And this year with the P2s, you know, the straight line speed we've seen in the test day, that P2 cars are now quicker at the end of the straight than the P1. So it's a similar sort of thing with them as well. So actually for us, okay, of course we've got to be looking at our mirrors and be watching for them coming through. But actually, I think this year it's going to be easier to manage and uh, certainly maybe the less experienced P2 drivers are going to be able to pass us a lot easier and, and not get in the way of our battle as well. For me, I love I love looking at the race as a whole, so I always pay attention to the, the P1s, especially having been in it for, for several years, but also looking at the GTs as well. The fascinating thing about the WEC is the battles throughout the field. So if there's a, a point in the race where the P1s are separated by 30 seconds, you've only got to look at P2 or the GTs to find a battle where you're talking, you know, tenths of a second. And that, and that's what I absolutely love about it. But just to, to touch upon what Harry said, there's always discussions about the closing speeds being too great. But funnily enough, from a driver's perspective, the, the greater the closing speeds, the actual easier it is to overtake because it makes life so much simpler. It, you know, I think certainly for the P2 drivers this year, where the cars are much quicker in a straight line, it's made life much simpler to overtake the GT cars. And it's interesting to hear Harry say it's actually easier for them as well because that overtaking maneuver is happening quicker. We're out of their way and we're allowing them to get on with their race and and focus on what they're doing much quicker. Importantly, and I think importantly for safety, is it's not happening in in the braking zone. And I think that's quite crucial, don't you think? Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, um, there's definitely less emphasis on dive bombing at the end of the straight because the P2 cars are similar speed to a GT or whatever. And I, I've experienced that in P2 myself when, you know, you get to the end of the straight and the Ferrari starts pulling away from you. It's not the nicest feeling knowing you're going into the braking zone and you're going to have to absolutely dive bomb like it's the last lap of the world championship to get past them without losing a couple of seconds. But just going back on your point of, uh, do you realize what, other battles are going on i think last year for the 67 car we were sort of out the running fairly early uh, and i remember getting in for the last stint and having a quick look at the the time screens for all the classes and seeing toyota leading and so when i came around on the penultimate lap and saw the toyota pulled off to the right of the circuit my initial feeling was 
that was the sister car waiting for the lead car to come round to do a last lap sort of victory, you know, side by side celebration. And as I came through the Dunlop chicane, I looked up at the big screen for the fans on the right and I saw it was all focused on the Porsche garage and they were sort of everyone was jumping up and down. And then it suddenly dawned on me, no, surely that's not the lead car stopped on the last lap. And then, of course, when I came round on the final lap, it was still there and kind of realized what happened. Do you, should you not be looking at the where uh, the, the marker boards and apexes <laughs> when you're going to the Dunlop chicane, not looking at the TV screens? I guess that's the question, isn't it? So do you think it's worse to be in the position where you lose out on victory right at the end or where your victory shot goes basically before the start of the race, obviously, as it was oh, for, no. for you last year with the gearbox problem? 100% at, at the end. I mean, I, when we won the race with Jota in 2014, the last 40 minutes, I just felt completely numb and sick in the garage, you know, just sat there. You'd done everything you can do. And it was then it was down to Ollie Turvey and the car making it to the end. And if that car had stopped at that point, I would I don't know why I think I just sunk to my knees and just wanted the world to swallow me up. So I mean, what Anthony and uh, the rest of the guys at Toyota must have been going through was uh, yeah a dread to think. But of course, for us, it was disappointing last year. But we still managed to play the team role in terms of going on tire you know different tire compounds earlier than 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 maybe we should do to give the information to the other cars that were up the front uh, fighting for the win and maybe that will come back to help us this year. And coming back to the difficulties of lapping passing cars being lapped being passed obviously the other factor is not just the car spec it's also the driver spec now there's 19 odd cars in LMP1 and GT Pro that have all pro lineups the rest of the field is is pro am and there's a wide range of ability level in terms of the the silver drivers and the the bronze drivers. So how do you deal with that? Because you can come up on a P2 car and there can be a big range in terms of the abilities or you can have one behind you. You just never, you can never be completely sure which driver, I guess, is in which car. Yeah, I mean, you can kind of, you get a bit of a feel from the the car characteristics and the attitude of of the car sort of as you're coming up to a corner and for us this year, I think, like I say, it's going to be easy. I think the, the the slowest P2 was still 12 seconds quicker than the quickest GT, whereas in the in the past years, it might be only one or two seconds. I think uh, uh, when I was with Nissan in P1, we were sort of doing the same times as the LMP2s and sort of getting in their way a little bit. But I think that would be less of an issue this year. And, and certainly the, the less experienced P2 drivers that maybe just doing Le Mans or just doing a couple of races this year who maybe take a couple of laps to get up to speed, at the start of their stints, I don't think they'll get in in the way as much because they, they've got such a straight line speed advantage this year. In terms of GT AM, of course, every time you see that orange sticker, that AM sticker on the back of uh, of the car, you probably give it just an extra ten centimeters of extra leeway just because you're not hundred percent sure who's in the car. But again, you get a feeling from the attitude of the car and where they're braking, who who's in the car. Um, if it's you know a Matt Griffin or if it's uh, an an amateur driver, but uh, we have you know a sufficient amount of lap time ahead of them that it's not been too bad this year. But certainly, um, if the GT Pro cars get pegged back too much, then you you start getting back into that old LMP2 GT dive bombing situation, and, and then you can see some issues. Gary, from what you saw at the test day, do you think it's going to be a fairly straightforward race in in that regard? Obviously. We've probably seen the overall driver standard go up over the years. In P2, you mean? Well, well, P2 in particular. There's still a few questionable drivers here and there, ones perhaps without the, the experience. But do you think that's something that's improving and it's we're less likely to see the, the incidents between AM drivers and I, the pro I, drivers? I think certainly in the context of the WEC, 
that you now need what I call a fake silver or or, or bloody good silver. Uh, I'm not. I wouldn't um, point any fingers at certain teammates of uh, Ollie, but uh, uh, you know because you do you do need. A good, you need a young guy who's out of single seaters, who who or happens to be world karting champion, former world karting champion, who is who is quick. The days of the fifty-something-year-old rich guy doing, you know, being in a being at the forefront of P two, uh, have gone to my to my mind. Even you know Simon Dolan, a good true amateur, but things have moved on from his day. I would say. I think certainly there is been a shift to to younger single-seater drivers realizing that actually there's a career in sports cars and I guess myself and you know Ollie Turvey and um Brendan Jarvis Hartley. of course and Hartley and Conway and, you know we're all to sort of blame, to blame. a little, little bit but um yeah I think someone like Simon who was really you know absolutely top level for a driver that's started racing in his in his forties, um, you know, we still managed to win European championships together last year, but it's becoming tougher and tougher every year. And he had to continually raise his game with all these younger guys coming through. So you've certainly seen less of the sort of dry, uh, Simon driver mold, and, and certainly a lot more of the Thomas Laurent, uh, Gustavo Menezes type drivers coming through and making a big impact. Yeah, very very much agree with that. I think especially in the WEC, maybe not in all other championships, but at the front of the field, you know, your silver driver is going to be a, a, a guy coming out of karting. Um, you know, maybe not a huge amount of single-seater experience or... Well, Thomas or, has none, of course. Or, or, you know, even sports car experience, but you only have to look at their CV and, you know, the pedigrees there. Um, you know, you don't need to give them much time in a car to be, be up to speed. And, and that's certainly what we've seen is, you know, people making that move to sports cars much earlier. And and so it does mean nowadays, if you want to win a win a LMP2 race, you need to have a very, very good silver. And of course, as well, with uh, the minimum drive time for the silver being six hours, it's not like you can put your guy in for 45 minutes and then have two pros do the next uh, 11 hours between them. It's uh, 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 each or whatever. So, um, yeah, it, it, you do need a very well-rounded team in LMP2 to, to have a chance. Ollie, have you ever shared a sports car with a useless fat amateur? <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure quite what you're getting at here, there, there was a moment uh, several years ago me and yourself shared a, a Maserati I believe wasn't it we had a, a bit of fun at Silverstone that was a, that was an interesting weekend yeah one of us put it on pole I forget which one of us had a quick <laughs> one spun one of us spun on the outlap yeah I was alright apart from the outlap in the race but uh, yeah that's uh, I'm not even sure where we ended up actually I think we were seventh I think I think we should have been fifth there was something strange going on with the timing of the pit stop. I think you were considered to be a bit quick. Yeah, they weren't very happy, were they? Because <laughs> they're, uh, I think a couple of their drivers were also doing the, the GT Championship that weekend and, and myself and Ed out-qualified them. Largely him. <laughs> but uh, yeah, anyway, uh, digressing. I'm obliged to mention that whenever, whenever I speak to, to Ollie. Obviously, he learned all about how not to do, to do it by uh, sharing with me. One of the things that has changed this year is there have been some little tweaks to the track in terms of the safety. Gary, can you just run through what's changed and then maybe we can see what the what the drivers think of it? Well, the significant thing is that where the Porsche end, Porsche curves end in the in the long right, as it bleeds into what we now call Corvette and used to be called karting, they've moved the inside wall back, what would we say, 10 metres, 10 yeah, yards? A, 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 lot. It's, a lot. It's a big difference. And obviously that's safety because the wall 
A, it was very close, and B, early on in the uh, corner, it was at quite an acute angle, wasn't it? Yeah. So it was, it, there was a, that was something that needed to be addressed. Obviously, moving the wall back changes the feel of the circuit as you're driving and the whole tunnel effect of the Porsche curves was part of their character would you agree yeah definitely I mean I'm all for safety I've got a little one I want to go home after the weekend and and see my family but there's something something makes Le Mans is is that it's kept its character over the years and it is still the same track okay it's changed slightly over the years but it's still got that feeling of a, a proper racetrack and unfortunately and I do understand it but from a pure driving point of view certainly the recent changes are taking a little bit away from that. And and this is one of those changes where, funny enough, it doesn't change the track at all, but it, it changes the feeling. So now you feel like you've got a lot more room, a lot more runoff, and you do lose that tunnel sensation. And of course I get it, you know, it has to be done. We're going through their incredible speeds and the last thing anybody wants is, you know, a, a big accident. But it it's certainly... You know, from a pure driving and selfish point of view, it it's not one that I'm a huge fan of. I didn't really notice it. Too much, <laughs> <to be honest. laughs> I've got to be careful what I say here because after admitted, you know, looking at the TV screens on the last lap last year, <laughs> but um, like Ollie said, it doesn't actually affect the the line of the of the corner or the radius at all. Um, so I didn't really. I had to look at your article oh, right. um, on autosport.com to actually see where the changes were. Right. So focused on the apex, but uh, interesting. There's not just a negative for the driver. I mean, the the changes in the Porsche curves over the last few years have has, have also impacted the spectators quite heavily. Because mm-hmm. I think you know my first experience in Le Mans was as a spectator, oh, right. and and one thing I loved was going and watch the Porsche curves at three in the morning. Mm-hmm. And I remember watching the LMP1 cars through there, and I thought, wow. They are just incredible. You know, I want to be here. This is what I want to do. The problem is, as they're increasing the runoff, you also means the spectators can't get as close to the track. And having been a spectator at certain tracks where you're 100 meters away, it doesn't matter how quick the corner is, you don't get that feeling or that sensation. And it's a real shame that, you know, we're also sort of taking that away from the spectators. I was talking to some drivers and obviously people make a comparison with Paul Ricard, which is the sort of ultimate sort of wide open circuit, isn't it? You know, a ribbon of a ribbon of racetrack through a wide expanse of, of tarmac. And people say that's easier if there's nothing to hit. The challenge is diminished. Would you would you agree with that? Yeah, 100 percent. If you go to Monaco, you start 80 percent, you go to 85, 90, 95 and, and the good drivers can get to to 98 you go to Paul Rickard you go to 110% and come back you know you can make errors you can do things that you'd never normally do if there was a wall or if there was a a gravel bed I mean you take Silverstone I mean cops I remember sitting in that gravel trap in a Formula Ford and it meant next time you went through they're slower you know whereas now you can go flat out 15 meters off the track Mm -hmm. come around next lap and and try again. Yeah. So as a driver, personally, I think it makes a huge difference. It makes it easier, definitely. Mm-hmm. Would yeah. you agree? No, 100%. I think if there's no consequence for making a mistake. You you have more confidence in the maybe a less skillful driver can, can match a, a, a more skillful driver. But, you know, you take Le Mans and somewhere like Indianapolis, you know, if if you make a mistake there, you're in the wall pretty hard. And so there you'll see a big difference, you know, with the driving 
speeds but you know if there was acres of runoff there i'm sure everyone would be taking that that first right flat and locking up and running wide and just turning on and, and continuing and trying to get the next lap so you know like ollie said it's got to be safe but at the same time there has to be a little bit of a consequence for a mistake um to really make that driving challenge as pure as as it can be but is it is it the lesser of two evils if some if suddenly we had a chicane before the porsche curves can you can you imagine the outcry the other option would be to reduce the speeds either by reducing the speed of the cars heavily or by putting in a chicane so in this case it's definitely the right decision there's no discussion about that and also to be clear Le Mans still hasn't lost its edge you know you talk about the Indianapolis that's a corner every lap in a P2 car you you try and decide how quick you you can take the first right because there is a consequence and there's a consequence that 95% of the corners on the track so it's a long way away from your Paul Ricards and places like that fortunately one of the things, Ollie, you're in a unique position to talk about is the difference between a P1 and a P2 car. Obviously, superficially, from a distance, they look similar, but huge differences. Obviously, the P2 car is more conventional. The the P1 cars, uh, certain manufacturer cars, have the, the hybrid systems, etc. Personally, it was a real shock to go from the P1 to the P2 car. And I think it's always easier stepping um, up, believe it or not, You know, going up in power, up in grip. And, uh, you know, you see a lot of Formula One drivers step down over the years to whether it be DTM or other categories and find it very difficult. And for me, I was I was quite shocked how different they are um, with the P1 car. Over the last few years, it's all been about the technology, about the hybrid, about very clever systems. You know, on the Audi, we spend the majority of our time setting up the, the s- systems and the software. And very little of our time was actually done on setup in the grand schemes of things, you know. We'd got things like integrated brake systems, link suspension systems. and Are you allowed to say that? Yeah. <laughs> can, I mean, now. Uh, can now. Can <laughs> now. And I'm sure Porsche and Toyota have, have similar, you know, things on their cars. And so we spent a lot more time talking about that. And I think also the way you drove the car was very different because you got that hybrid, you got that power. You would, it was all about braking late, getting the car turned, getting it stopped and getting on the power early and using that hybrid to pull the car out of the corner. The P2 car, whilst they've, they've made a huge progression this year, they don't have that um, boost out of the corner. So it's very much about carrying the speed into the corner and really you know, keeping the momentum as high as possible. So they're a completely different driving style. And, you know, I, to be completely honest, it's taken me a little while to get my head around that. And you know, interesting to see Roman Dumas jumped in and sparred. I think you know, he also found it you know, a huge difference to, to the Porsche last year. Is it it's sort of it's almost old school? Yeah, in, it's, it's in going back you to your Formula it. Three days and, mm. and Formula Renault. Um, you know, where it's all about keeping that minimum speed up, yeah. carrying as much speed as possible into the corner, and uh, you know, trying to get the the best exit possible. I certainly found um, coming from Formula Three into LMP two like I did that the difference and the the step was very small. Uh, within half a day, I, w- I felt completely at home in a P two car because certainly back then the power to weight ratio w- was was fairly similar to an F3 car and the driving style was the same. Okay, it's got more power now, but it sounds like essentially it's still a similar style. Mm-hmm. And so I think that, is, again, is another reason why you see your Menezeses and people like that come across from Formula 3 as a silver driver and be straight on it and be within, you know, three, four, five tenths mm-hmm. of, of an LMP1 driver. All about momentum conservation, really, isn't it? It's, so it is Formula 3. Yeah, and, and there's also a different balance in the car. You know, they're, they're shorter, they're more agile. The P1 was, uh, you know, very stable. We did a lot of work, 
you know, on the damping over curbs mm. and over bumps. So there's a big difference from, from that side of things. But it's been fascinating as a driver to really get back into the, you know, third third elements, you know, springs, roll mm. bars, and, and really understanding that side of things again. Because for many years, it like I say, we were talking about um, the hybrid under braking, uh, whether we're boosting too much, boosting too little. And, and that kind of took away from the pure setup element of a, of a race car. Is there a most enjoyable class of car to race? Obviously, Ollie, you're racing a Bentley in Blancpain GT as well, so you've got some experience of that. I can't speak for Harry. It's not, but uh, for myself, it's not so much about the car. It's about the competition. If you're in a good car and fighting at the front with good drivers, having good battles, there's respect. For me, that's the, the greatest thing. It doesn't matter whether it's a GT car, an LMP1 car, an LMP2 car, you know, even going out on a road car and having a good battle. I think as drivers, we love the competition and, and the wheel-to-wheel racing. And I think LMP1 has it, the front of LMP2, and, you know, you watch the GT races and they're wheel-to-wheel for whether it be the 12 hours of Sebring, the six hours of Spa, you know, some of them races are coming down, three cars are fighting for the lead with two corners to go. And, and as a driver, that's the, the best thing. So you'd swap close competition for the thrill of driving the fastest car? Don't get me wrong, there's something very special about driving a, an LMP1 or an MP2 car. But yeah, quite honestly, to, to go out and be able to run at the front, to be competitive and to have that um, element of competition, that's more important to me than, than going around and, and winning by three laps in a car that's far superior. Yeah, no, I know. I completely agree. I mean, of course, to be in the fastest car and just be able to look ahead the whole time is a fantastic feeling. I'm sure going, you know, for the overall win at Le Mans, having the name on the trophy with all the, the greats that have come before you is fantastic. And certainly I want to, you know, one day compete for that uh, that title. But, you know, if you look at the GT class this year, it's, you know, four manufacturers, BMW coming in next year, um, all with completely stacked driver lineups and teams. And so to be right in the thick of that action um you know fighting flat out for 24 hours um regardless of how quick the cars are in comparison to what else is on the circuit that that's a very special feeling and um you know daytona this year there was six or seven cars in the line with in the last half an hour and as a as a racing fan you know looking at it from the side of the track even though you know one of your cars is there competing it was exciting and and that's what we want and i think um you know, GTs is only going to get more exciting as the more manufacturers come in. Well, you've certainly chosen the best classes in terms of the close racing because P2 and GT Pro are always very, very closely fought at them on. Well, let's try and uh, raise Nick Tandy on the phone so we can have a little bit of a chat to him. We'll come back and look a little bit more in detail at the various contenders after that. So uh, we're going to try and do a little bit of technical wizardry and see if we can get uh, Nick, who's of course back in the Porsche P1 this year, on the line. And joining us now on the line, we do have Nick Tandy, 2015 Le Mans 24 Hours winner. Nick, thanks for joining us. You're back in a a P1 car now, fighting for an outright victory again. Effectively, this is kind of you defending that that outright win, I guess, even though you were in the GT car last year. So that must be pretty pretty exciting for you to be back in the the top class. Yeah, of course. It's... um... You know, it's, it's it's great to drive the cars at that track anyway. It's good to drive those cars anywhere, um, you know, as, as Ollie knows. So, um, yes, it's uh, it's kind of a defence, if you like. But um, the trouble is that there's a pair of us going to defend, as well as the, you know, the, the, the defending crew from last year, in that, um, you know, me and Earl are, are, are split up this year, where, 
the last time we kind of remember going there together was um, things were a little bit different, of course. So you're defending against each other in a way, aren't you, Nick? Yeah, exactly. It feels a bit odd, actually. Um, you know, even though we drove in separate cars last year, it's um, yeah, it felt a bit odd going to the test day and and speaking to him, but knowing that you're directly in competition um, this time, so. It's a bit of a shame, but it's always nice to have a, a friend on the other side of the garage as such. Does it feel different going back this year with the expectation being a past winner? Um, is there more pressure, do you think? I don't know, mate. Um, I think the pressure comes off a little bit because we all want to, to get to that point of, of winning these kind of races at some point. So kind of once, I guess for me, knowing that I've accomplished you know, what you set out to do, um, the pressure's kind of off a little bit to, to actually get there because, you know, it's, it's, it'd be great to, to win again and, uh, and all of us want to win these, these big events, um, whenever we go to them. Um, but yeah, once you've kind of ticked it off the list, it, it kind of does take a little bit of pressure off, I guess. But no. <laughs> what do you guys think? Well, personally, I've never won them on and I don't think we have any other, we only have a class winner with us here, so. <laughs> It's a, you know like you say you, you you've won it so um, in that respect you've got nothing to prove but at the same time everyone's looking out for you I guess but uh, I guess one of the things I'm quite interested to know is you know you won Le Mans outright in 2015 you then went back to GTs last year how did it feel at the test day you know in the first two races this year being back in P1 I mean you less to think about maybe through the traffic but a more complex car to drive i mean overall what what did you find was easier you've hit the nail on the head really the traffic issue is a lot easier in the faster class you know as as, as we all know you spend your time looking forward rather than looking forwards and backwards um and especially at the mon when you've got 60 odd cars on the track you know in gt class you are you are constantly looking around and it, it takes a lot of time and effort to, to figure out where everyone else is as much as doing what you're, you're doing yourself. Whereas in the, in the P1 class, unless you're battling with somebody else, which is very, you know, it's not so frequent in a 24 hour race, you're, you're always looking forward. So I've always said from that point of view, it is easier in the, in the faster cars. It's probably also easier physically, I'd say, because the corners are shorter. Um, even though the G-force is different, I always find you tend to do a lot more work behind the wheel in the, in a GT car, it's moving around a lot more and the corners are longer. I can't wait for race week to start. We all do a whole season and, and winter's worth of testing and, and most of it is building up to this one weekend in France, isn't it? Is the sense of anticipation in any way tempered by the fact that the test day didn't look quite so promising for Porsche? Obviously, the fastest time was a 3.18.1 by a Toyota. The fastest yeah. Porsche at that time we saw was a 3.21. So that's got to be concerning. It's, uh, yes, it's a little bit concerning. Um, we don't know our outright pace, but you can kind of look from the test day at what your average pace was in competition with um, the other people that you're, you're racing against. And uh, yeah, we've got a bit of work to do, it looks like. I think um, we might have to go about the race, um, you know, in a, in a different way from maybe a strategy point of view rather than just going, you know, going flat out and hoping that we're the fastest car. Um, Endurance racing is all about making it to the finish, of course. So you've still got to be around. But, um, yeah, we're a little bit concerned about the pace of the Toyota's on the test day. 
Do you think if we if we go back twelve months, the sort of situations were re- reversed, weren't they? Do you remember Toyota really struggled at the test day, but then they gradually got quicker through race week. Then you know when it mattered on Sunday morning, they had the quickest car. We've seen the precedent of the sort of reversal of fortunes between test day and the race. Do you feel that you know with hard work, a lot of effort, obviously your undeniable talent and all those things that you can sort of peg it back I hope so <laughs> um, well like you say it's uh, you know it showed last year as you say that Toyota struggled in the test and um, it was very different in the race we've obviously seen that they've been very strong in the first part of this season um, and you know they're, they're taking three cars at it as well which is also a big factor um, we, we kind of know where we are and we're confident. We're not going to be three seconds away, put it that way. Um, but where we'd like to be is three seconds in front and make mm-hmm. the race easy. But uh, yeah, I don't think that's it's going to be the case. I'm sure. I'm sure it'll be it'll be close. They look like they've done a lot of work on their on their qualifying work. Um, how you go about using the hybrid system and harvesting and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah, they might be quicker in the quali. But like I say, the, the race stuff, and if it looks like they've got a very slippery car, they look quick in the middle sector, which is, you know, the Molson straight, effectively. So maybe tyre wear, if they're running, if we've got more drag and more downforce, then tyre wear might be in our favour, stuff like that. Pit stops, refueling times, anything can happen. So we shall still be going for the race week yeah, with full force and flat out, of course. You talked about the free cars there, Nick. And I I think that's really interesting because when we've talked about when you went in the third car in 2015, it was 100% uh, free equal cars. The way you shared the sort of pre-race endurance simulations, everything about it sort of made for free equal cars. I just don't get that same feeling with Toyota. The way they've shuffled the lineup, the experience of the drivers. I know you had two rookies with you. I just don't get that vibe that I got two years ago with Porsche that really there are free equal cars. Yeah, I know what you mean. From our point of view, hopefully so. The thing is, Toyota are a major manufacturer. They're not going to enter a car into a race like this without putting the right amount of preparation and, and resource behind it. Yes, they might have some, some rookie drivers, but as we saw in 15, that doesn't really matter. It just gives you another bullet in the gun, doesn't it? It's, mm-hmm. um, I think it's, it's always better if you've, got, if you've got an extra chance. Because, like I say, major manufacturers, you won't be taking resource or any sort of effort out of the other two cars um, by, by building additional entries. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't do it. So it's, it, it can only be a plus point for them. How are you getting on with your, your new teammates? Andre Lotterer, one of the stars of sports car racing of recent years, and the same with Neil Yarny. How's that whole trio gelling, do you feel? It's, it's, it's good. It's great. It, it obviously takes time to, to form relationships. But, you know, we've been together now for, for more than six months, really, from when we started testing. I worked out recently that, you know, when you have a a bond and you have a certain respect for your teammates, I, I find it kind of spurs spurs you on in the car because you don't want to let your, your mates down. You don't want to let your teammates down. By doing something to affect his race, I don't know how you other two guys feel about that, but it's, it's kind of that thing already. I think there's a great deal of respect between the three of us and we're, we're 
friends already. We speak to each other outside of the track. So then you've got this, you've, I've already got this feeling of, of not wanting to let my, my teammates down, which I guess kind of, it builds a, a stronger, stronger team. What do, what do you guys think? I think um, for me, that, that always existed from the moment I joined a team. But I think what I really noticed with, with Loic and Lucas, certainly in the second year, was the level of trust increase. And that was, you know, being able to sort of know that they'll have your back if you make a mistake and, and you'll have their back if they make one. And also just knowing, you know, not every driver has a, a good day every day of the year. But knowing that, you know, when you don't have a good day, it's not an issue. They're there to pick up the slack and you'll do the same for them. And I think for, for me, Loic and Lucas, our progression as a team through 2015 was incredible. And I think that really showed the difference in 2016 when we arrived you know, at the circuit that we were just so much more comfortable with each other. But as you say, that takes time. It's not something you can force. I mean, for us, we had to work at it initially and um, we're all very three very different characters but now we've built a great relationship and that is so important in sports car to, to have that to, to get on with the guys you're in a car with to trust them and uh, you know even now we're all in racing different things but we're on the text messages you know staying in contact and you know I think for me that makes all the difference and, and that's where the likes of Andre Ben and Marcel really set the set the benchmark because they were best of mates off the track and you know, just trust each other explicitly on it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's, it's going well. It's going down that, that kind of line already. So, um, you know, it, it takes time to build uh, build relationships, like you say. But uh, at the end of the day, as long as everyone does the, the best job on, on track, then that's, um, that's what we need to get results in it. What's it like to be involved with a manufacturer operation like Porsche? Presumably, having done the test day, the amount of work that's going into dragging every last bit of extra performance that can be found into that car will be at another level. So just give people a bit of an impression of, of what an organisation is like that to drive for. And the good thing about working with a manufacturer is you kind of, you have an open book for development. So if you want something changed or you want something different or you've got an idea of the philosophy of where you want to go with the car or whatever, then people listen to you and, and you can actually actively be involved with with shaping how a car or a team is, um, you know, is built. It's something I kind of learned a little bit when I went to to KCMG um, and did a few races in 2015. It, it, it kind of struck me then that how much of, um, you know, an open book you have when you're working with a manufacturer against kind of running um, a, a specified chassis or an engine or, or, or electronics or, or stuff like that. Um, and it's even it's even like building a team. I, I remember when we set up the, the GTLM Porsche team in the in the States. Uh, the first year was 2014, and I was involved in that for the first three years of its. You know when they went racing again in in America as a factory effort, and I kind of left this year. It was kind of what I almost considered my team and my family, and um, you know I was really pleased and proud of how people let me get involved and, and develop that team as much as a, a car. So it's 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 great in that, that aspect, working with Porsche and working with the manufacturer. It's, it just gives you so much more scope to, to have an influence on, on how your, your racing goes. Well, we don't want to take up much more of your, your time, Nick, but I guess the last thing is, do you feel like you're heading back to Le Mans to get that second win? 
or is it with the way things have gone so far is it just that same feeling of kind of nervousness anticipation where's everything gonna settle down once once you get into the serious running well i'm definitely going back for the win um but we do that every year the trouble is it's Le Mans, and you know it's been said before. It's places like Nurburgring picks you to win. Places like Le Mans, they, the the race kind of selects you. Um, so if it's if it's our turn uh, again, then it'll be great. And if it's not, then uh, it's 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 not. So you can be assured that we are putting a hundred percent effort in, and I'm definitely packing up on Saturday. And uh, yeah, I'm going out there to win it. So. It's a special week, and I'm looking forward to getting there. Well, good luck. Hope it all goes well, and thank you for your time. So, Gary, from Nick's tone, he sounds very much like he's wondering whether Porsche are going to go there as second favourites. I think we see Toyota as favourites. And if Toyota are favourites, do you see that it's the the luckless crew from last year, Davidson, Boemi, and Nakajima, who go there as the the number one favourites for the race? Yes, I think Toyota are favourites. I wouldn't necessarily say uh, last year's moral winners, if we can call them that, are necessarily the crew who are going to do it. I think, you know, if you look at last year, the other car was ahead of Davidson Buemi and Nakajima for much of the race. The sort of tables turned later on as a result of a, a little mistake by Kobayashi that sort of affected the performance of the car. I think from what we've seen this year that, that, those two crews, the the sort of two regular crews, are very equal. And of course, in the uh, number seven car, we have Stefan Sarazan back after the reshuffle of the uh, Toyota lineup ahead of Le Mans. So he's moved from sort of leading the third car to now coming back into the regular wet car for this race only. And he's a driver who's got a few poles at Le Mans, hasn't he? He's, he's been quick now, in the past. You know, it seemed like in the early years of Peugeot, he was on pole every year. And I'm going to say he got three in a row, but someone will probably correct me uh, and, and tell me that that's wrong. The stat I know is that Thomas Enger got five in a row in GTS stroke GT1, but I, I'm, I'm not so good on uh, Sarazan's pole run. But I, I'm going to say he got three. Obviously, there has been that mix around in terms of Jose Maria Lopez being switched into the, the number three car, effectively. So what what's that about? Well, Lopez struggled with getting track time. He had the misfortune to jump in a car at Silverstone that wasn't the car he was expecting to jump into because the rear anti-roll bar had broken. It was The track was still a bit damp. Uh, he put it in the barriers, suffered a minor back injury. That kept him out of the car at Spa so he was lacking race mileage and that's why the team opted for this uh, reshuffle that makes sense and it looks like a strong lineup all the way through see the number seven car is Mike Conway Kamri Kobayashi Stefan Sarazan number eight Sebastian Boemi Anthony Davidson Kazuki Nakajima and then this third car number nine which has got Nicola Lapierre who's been brought back into the fold by Toyota Yuji Kanemoto and Jose Maria Lopez so that's that's a pretty strong lineup across the board and the fact they've got this weight in numbers as well, having the, the third bullet in the gun, as it were, compared to Porsche's two. Porsche have got the number one car for Neil Yarny, Andre Lotterer, Nick Tandy, and the number two car for Timo Bernhard, Earl Bamber, and Brendan Hartley. So it seems like all of the odds should be stacked in favour of, of Japan, shouldn't they? Well, if you look at the years that Toyota should have won in the present programme, which is 2014 and last year, they had uh, two cars that had the pace to win, 
One was delayed by an accident, of course, in 14. It was Lapierre's misfortune to to run into a massive downpour on the Walsand Strait when he was on slicks. Uh, last year, it was Kobayashi's incident with a, a, a slower car. The other two cars went out with a minor technical glitch. One was a, a failed sensor, an FIA sensor that caused the wiring loom to burn out. Uh, that was in 2014. And last year, it was a freak failure of a joint in a pipe connecting a turbo to an intercooler so basically each time you could say if they've had a third car they might have won and that's that's the rationale behind their decision to run a third car this this year ollie as a driver fresh out of the p1 ranks how do you see it would you agree with gary's assessment there yeah very much so i think um certainly the toyotas look very strong there's no doubt about that and as you mentioned two very strong cars will be interesting to see how the the third toyota runs it's not easy for a manufacturer to bring a a third car in um porsche were in a a slightly different did it a different way they always planned a third car so the team was built around three cars toyota have been running two cars for a long time now and to, to add an additional car is it's much more complex than people might think because if you just take logistics and personnel, everything's been set up around two cars. And there's that danger that the third car's made up of, you know, people from the factory that probably aren't race ready. And there is always that risk that it's it's not up to, to sort of performance or spec of the other two cars. But, you know, that wouldn't be on purpose. That would just be some you know, things like the pit stops, they might lose a second here or there. It was certainly the, the case for, for Audi's third car in the early days. I have to say, the last few years, they really made sure they arrived with, with three cars capable of winning. But I think it's a great tactic from from Toyota. You know, they're desperate to win Le Mans. And completely agree with Gary, the years they've lost it, they had the car to win it. And a third car probably would have made all the difference and there was a reason Audi and, and Porsche had three cars and that it just stacked the odds in your favor you know two cars as we saw with the likes of you know Alan had his accident Rocky had his accident and then uh, you know Andre and that went on to win it you know it's a it's amazing what it allows you to do it it just gives you also different op- options for strategy but it takes away you know the risk element as well of the chance are you will have one technical failure there might be a car crash and Hopefully that third car is still in the race. Well, we've talked quite a lot about P1, so I should say there is one privateer car, the Bicolors CLM. Anyone want to tip them to uh, to take a shot win? I think they'll do well to win the P2 class, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's uh, yeah, not not an easy life for, for P1 privateers, should we say. But P2, Ollie, this is your class, just in case you weren't aware. It's the most numerous class, 25 cars. It seems like this is going to be an Orica benefit based on what we've seen so far. Yeah, I have to confess I was surprised to see the gap between the the top Oricas and the top Ligiers and Delaras. Um, you know, obviously, Orica have done a fantastic job with the car, but I also think there's strength in numbers. There's a lot of very good lineups in the Orica as well, and that plays a, a huge factor. But in P2, you can't discount anything because you've also got the silver driver. Don't forget, they're also all brand new cars, and reliability could play a huge role in the race. It, it's not like P1 with endless budgets and 30-hour tests, you know, there's, there's going to be a, a huge factor of reliability in the race, I'm sure. The best non-Orica time was, what, 3.7 seconds off. And I should add that the, the Cygnusec Alpines are Oricas, even though they're entered. And I think they are homologated as Alpines, aren't they? Even though they are 
apparently no, say. They are no different. So Even though you're not allowed manufacturers. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yes. There we go. But you've talked about how the silvers and everything and things can affect things. But if that's representative of the pace difference between the Oricas and the rest, then it's almost inconceivable that an Orica won't win it if there's at least one car that has a, has a clean run. Yeah, I mean, with a, with a gap of 3.7 seconds, if that's realistic, then even if you have an issue, if you're 3.7 seconds a lap quicker for, for 300 laps, you know, that's a that's a big difference. So I hope it's not realistic. I hope over race pace and, and everything, they, they manage to bring that down. But at the moment, it's looking very much like you'll see an Orica on the, the top step. Do you feel like you're going there as one of the favourites? Obviously... It's a strong team. You won at Silverstone, third at Spa. Uh, this is the, uh, I've got to get the car number right, it's the, 30, the 38 car with Hope in Tongue, Thomas Laurent, yourself. Um, I don't know. I haven't given it much a thought, to be honest. Uh, we've really been focusing on on our own job. We've, we had the win in the third place, but I have to say we did a lot of soul searching after Spa because we weren't happy with our performance. It's a strange feeling, but it also shows the strength of the team to come away with a third place and to seriously look and understand why we didn't win it. It just shows what winners they are. And we did. We had a two-day test at Spa, did a lot of work on the car. And I have to say, in Le Mans, I was really impressed with, with the job we'd done in the two days at Spa, what we'd learned, and how we were able to, to carry that over. And, you know, we're not right up there on the times, but that was never our intention. We seem to sort of fly a little bit under the radar. You know, if we can stay out of trouble, if we can have good reliability, I, I don't see why we shouldn't be there at the end. But that can go for five or six cars. Something that's really surprised me and, and impressed me is, is the strength of the P2 class. Um, there's some very, very quick guys in there and, and some very quick cars. And when you think that there's meant to be a silver driver in each car, we, we touched on it earlier. Some of them are, are incredibly quick as well. So, you know, it, it's almost the top six are, you know, the difference between the silvers and the pros is very little. Harry, obviously you've had plenty of involvement in P2 in the past, a former winner, as you said before. Who stands out in that class to you? I'm assuming you keep kind of an eye on it from a from a distance. Yeah, definitely. I mean, obviously Ollie's car is is looking strong and he's carrying the the mighty 38 tag um, that we've passed on from the uh, Zytec and Gibson days. So hopefully that will be... Uh, well represented. Um, and hasn't sure your chassis be. got to have done 158 races or something before it can be considered mighty? <laughs> exactly. But uh, no, I think, um, you know, like we kind of touched on earlier, I think the cars that are going to be there at the end are going to be the ones with the all-round lineup. And I think all these cars certainly got that. I mean, for me, the G-Drive car, um, Alex Lynn, Thierry and Rusinov, um, that's been super strong in the first two rounds of the, of the WEC. And, and Thierry is a good silver, isn't he? Thierry is a good silver. You know, had some great battles with him in the LMS over the last couple of years. And um, himself and Roman haven't won Le Mans yet. I uh, know Roman's very motivated to do that. So I think they'll be they'll be there. And obviously, Alex Lynn's a, is a great talent from single-seaters. Um, Nelson Pantacicci's car, he obviously topped the test. Um Fairly strong lineup as well. I, I think you know the Signatech cars will be there, and of course Rebellion top team and and got good lineups, good silver drivers. So I'm sure they won't be far away. It's going to certainly you know five or six cars at least. And I think uh, if I had to say right now, of course I'm rooting for Ollie and for Jota, but I think the G Drive car will be very close, and that that could be nip and tuck. How do you see it, Gary? For me, the favourites all come from the WEC, so it's basically Ollie's car. I think certainly G Drive. But I think Rebellion's silvers are true silvers. Julian Canal 
and David Hennemeyer Hansen, but they are both very good true silvers. Hennemeyer Hansen can be slightly wayward at times, but he is, you know, he is quick for an internet billionaire or, or, or whatever he is, you know, not a pro racer. If I was a betting man, I would I would say the uh, the best of the uh, Jota cars, the G-Drive car and both Rebellions. So if Rebellion have got two strong cars, does that make them favourites for me, perhaps? Is there anyone we should be looking out for in the non-Orica ranks? Obviously, there's Ligier's, Delara's, and there's a, there's a Riley out there as well, isn't there? Philippe Albuquerque. I mean, point him out straight away. Race with him very quick. You've got him in the, the Ligier, Baliki in the Delara. I mean, nice to see Baracello in the Delara as well. I mean, there's some very quick guys all through the field, and, and that's a really impressive thing for me. So come on, Gary, I want you to pick a winner. Well, OK, um, my money's going on Rebellion because it's got two two strong cars. I'm glad you said that, Gary, because I, I thought you might give us a kiss of death. There. Yeah, yeah. Because, <laughs> you know, Signatech have got two OK cars, but I don't think Signatech are going to be the force that they were last year. You know, without Menezes as their rogue silver, I just think they've lost a couple of teeth, as it were. But there are, the great thing about P2 is there's so many interesting stories and interesting drives. You mentioned Rubens Barrichello. Formula One fans will be familiar with with Manor, who've got a couple of cars. It's their second season in and sports cars. Jan Lammers coming back. Aged Jan Lammers, yeah. As a 60-something, coming back for his 23rd Le Mans, which is moving him up the list of all-time uh, participants. He told me he wants to get to 25, so, so that will take him into his sort of mid-60s. It's great to have that blend of drivers, isn't it? Jan Lammers feels like a name from the past now, mm. isn't it? Well, he is, yeah. He's, you he's know, racing nearly, in Formula One in the early 80s. Well, it's nearly 30 years, of course, since he won Le Mans. So, yeah, I'd urge everyone to have a good look. P2 is difficult because it's always the secondary class, certainly at WAC level, obviously, in European Le Mans series, it's the primary class. But there, there's loads of great teams, great drivers. It'll be a, a fascinating battle. Now, we haven't talked too much about GTE specifically, as GTE Pro has cropped up and we have a Ford driver in the room, I'm obliged to start with the balanced performance. But I think we'll go to Gary first because I, I think Harry probably doesn't want to dig himself into too, too big a hole. Can you just explain what on earth is going on in the world of, of GTE Pro, what the arguments are about and how everything should shake out next week? Well, obviously, we had a situation last year where there was a lot of finger pointing. Uh, we had a race in which only two of the cars were competitive and we can we can say it was the Ford that obviously won and and Ferrari uh some people say Ford really did have an advantage through the race but what we shouldn't forget is the two quickest Ferraris the true factory cars the AF Corsa cars were out early so it was the sort of it was the Ritzy car that took up the challenge wasn't it exactly to call it the second string car might offend Ritzy but I personally think the AF Corsa cars would have been stronger if they hadn't have had their problems and still still been in the race. So that's something that we shouldn't forget about last year. We now have something called the automatic BOP, which is a fully... A whole extra letter in the acronym, sure. Yes, yeah. The BOP will be from the Nürburgring WEC race next month, will be adjusted on a race-by-race basis according to a complicated equation into which data is fed and the BOP is calculated. Not that we know what the equation is. Uh, I was told by one engineer there's no point telling journalists because you're too stupid to uh, understand it. For this race, because of the unique demands of Le Mans, we're, we're on a what could be called a slightly less objective BOP where there's still a lot of number crunching, but it's not actually defined how the BOP is worked out in a big computer. It, there is a, a human element in it, if you like. On the basis of the new BOP, 
four of the five manufacturers were within six tenths. And, and which one wasn't within? And which that one spread? wasn't, Harry? <laughs> I blame the drivers. There's a delay. Yeah. Um, They're wading I mean, into a minefield here. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it seems like every time we talk about GTs, BOP is like the first thing on the question list. But I mean, for my side, driving the car, all I can do is is my best. And I think, you know, we've seen in the first two races this season, Andy and I were on pole at Silverstone by eight tenths. We went on to win the race despite a, a problem. Uh, we would have been second at Spa without an issue, but you know, race the Ferraris fair and square in 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 the first stint and in in qualifying. So this year, there's there's no question in terms of our team sandbagging. Are they are they not? I don't think you really can get away with, with it. To be honest, there's penalties in the rule book if you are seen to be doing it. And like I say, we we raced the Ferrari fair and square in the first two races. We won at Silverstone, but we we were, we were beaten at, at Spa. And we've then been given, you know, 15 horsepower less and 20 kilos more, which on our sort of simulation equated to, to 1.9 seconds. And I think we were what, one and a half seconds off the Ferrari in the, in the, in the test. So, I mean, I, I don't really know what more to say than that. I think um, certainly we are a little bit down. We'll keep fighting and we'll, we'll keep pushing. And I'm sure we can try and get closer during the race week. But at, at the moment, it's certainly slightly concerning that we are a bit off the pace. I think it's important to say, uh, amid all the finger pointing and people saying, oh, yeah, the Fords are six seconds off their qualifying pace. Well, the qualifying pace isn't relevant, A, because that's qualifying. And uh, to my understanding, no Fords went for a qualifying run. But also, you know, the track isn't at its qualifying pace yet, is it? So I think you have to look at the times done last year and you're approximately two seconds off, aren't you, from where you were at the test last year? Yeah, I think we think it's a second and a half. And um, yeah, like I say, we, we were sort of predicting about 1.9 second loss. So there's obviously, you know, learning the car a little bit more this year. We, we you know, as drivers, we can eke a bit more out of it. But the other thing we just have to be slightly careful of with the BOP is also the straight line speeds. I mean, I had a Corvette pass me like I was stood still. I think, you know, best straight line speed, the best straight line speed was six mile an hour. And it. I think on other laps, it was even more. So we need to obviously make sure the BOP is close for the lap time, but also that we can race each other because there's no point in just having cars quick on the straight and then you can't overtake each other. The person who's in charge of BOP, it, it, it's not an enviable position to be in. And I think everyone's happy when it goes to this automated system from, from then on. I doubt any teams were doing qualifying simulation runs in, in, the, in the test day and uh, th- there'll be more time to come in the race, for, uh, in, in the race week for sure. And uh, yeah, we'll see where we're after qualifying. I, I'm convinced that the ACO and the FIA will get it right. A, because they've got more data available this year. B, they've got more people looking at it. And those extra eyes include the eyes of everyone within each of the manufacturers. Everything is transparent. All the data is being circulated. So it's not just some some uh, engineers in Paris or wherever uh, the FIA engineers are based it's the engineers from each uh, manufacturer can look at the information and then have their input into the into the whole process yeah i mean they're they're analyzing the uh, telemetry in real time just like we are so it's not like you can lift off you know, 200 meters before a corner and and not do a good time in hope of getting some some bop they can see you know if the engine's turned up or turned down like i say we, we, we're just 
went about our day as best we could and uh, we were a little bit surprised by by the pace of some others but when you look at the relative um, pace in the first two races and then if you if you give that big BOP hit then that's probably going to wash out the way it has. So do you think Ford's a contender then Gary? Yes I, I hope we are I mean of course we, we're not going there to, to to be at the back I mean Andy and I and Pipo are leading the world championship and we, we've done that on merit and yeah we, we, we'll go there and, and I think from from my personal sort of standpoint you know the 67 car's got to go there and be the best Ford and you look at the lineups in the Fords it is stacked full of Indy 500 winners Daytona winners Le Mans winners so that is a that's going to be a bloody tough um task in itself and i think if you are the top ford you're going to be there or thereabouts at the end of the race because you know we've got four bullets in the chamber um we've got we've got a strong reliable car and we've got the form from last year but there, there's no doubt there's time to be made up well it's worth a quick rundown of the of the ford entries car 66 olivier plus stefan mucker billy johnson car 67 andy prio someone called harry tinknell uh, pippo durani of course a sebring and daytona winner those are the two ganassi uk entries and then there's a 68 car joey hand tony canan dirk muller and the 69 car ryan briscoe scott dixon richard westbrook which are the ganassi usa ones well, i wanted to ask harry obviously they're all ganassi entries but how does it work in terms of operating as a team obviously one is based to race in US full-time, one UK full-time. But do the, do the two teams mesh together well at Le Mans or are they slightly separated? All four are lined up uh, alongside of each other in the garages. And of, of course, like you say, you have the Team USA focus on the IMSA um, championship and the, and the Team UK focus on, on, on the WEC. But within those teams are people integrating across, across both platforms. So we've had situations this year where the IMSA car has been racing and then we've had a race the weekend after and we've had people from the UK team o- over it with um, the, U- the US team looking at the data looking at what we can improve and then taking that back foot for the wet race the week after it and, and vice versa there's lots of crossover between the two championships but at the end of the day it is one team um, and you know all the data and all the setups are completely shared and that's the way it has to be. It's a strong enough class as it is. And we need to make sure that we take those those four chances that we've got and, and make the most out of them. But by having two sort of separate championships going on, it, it means that we can sort of take the the benefits and the pluses from both. And, and hopefully any of the mistakes or, or the um, sort of weaknesses in the car, we've got twice as much chance to find them and improve them before Le Mans, which is why we're both series are, are you know, are racing for this is the one we want to win let's go let's have a look at the rest of the class obviously it's a very strong class with ferrari chevrolet ford aston martin and porsche all in there obviously it's a european audience they have corsa cars 51 of alessandro pierre guidi james collado and lucas de grassi and the 71 car davide rigon san bird and miguel molina both jump out at you but it's very very hard to pick a favorite out of this lot isn't it because it, it's just it looks like a class any of those should be able to be in contention to win with the bop Absolutely. If the BOP is correct and it looks like it's on the way to being correct and there, you know, I should uh, add that there will be or almost certainly will be changes possibly before this is even broadcast. Uh, But certainly when I looked at the uh, FIA site this morning and it's Thursday, uh, by the way, the second BOP hadn't gone up. So there will be changes ahead of qualifying. 
and the ACO and the FIA are reserving the right to make further changes as there were last year between qualifying and the race. Although they're, they're saying we don't really want to do that. That isn't uh, the intention, the uh, end point of the process. I think, you know, if the BOP is close and, you know, the BOP is there to do a job, you know, it's it's it balance of performance. It's meant to level the playing fields. So you have these wide variety of cars, some with mid engines, some with front engines in the old days, some with rear engine, though not anymore because Porsche have uh, have put a mid have built a mid-engine 911 if that's allowed um what well, is allowed on the, the regulations maybe it's not allowed uh in the eyes of porsche purists but anyway yeah the balance is, performance is there to do a job and i am very confident that this year at le mans it will do a job and we're going to see a super close race you know we're not going to see anyone dominating we're not going to see a situation like last year where we had two of the makes dominating and and the others nowhere i i'm convinced that's not going to happen yeah and, and strong driver lineups all the way through you mentioned the of course the ferraris it's also the ritzy ferrari of tony volander giancarlo fisichella and pierre caffer corvette have got two cars 63 for jan magnussen antonio garcia and jordan taylor and 64 for oliver gavin tommy milner and marcel fassler a two-car works porsche entry car 91 of richard leitz frederick makoviecki patrick pa and the 92 car of michael christensen dirt Werner, and kevin estre there's also the two Aston Martins. Just wanted to ask you about that because there is something of a tyre war here. They're on Dunlops compared to the Michelins That's everyone right, else is yeah. on. Uh, we've got car 95, Nicky Team, Marco Sorensen, Richie Stanaway, and car 97 of Darren Turner, Johnny Adam, and Daniel Serra. Is there any real interest to be had in that tyre war? Do we seeing any dramatic well, difference in performance? Well, let's not forget that the tyre war won Aston the championship last year as tyre development won Porsche the championship the year before, you know. In 2015, Porsche had a big development program with Michelin after Le Mans, and that turned the tables. Last year, Aston introduced new tyres at Mexico, I believe, and that turned and that turned the tables in the championship. Michelin, it appears, caught up over the winter, and Aston didn't have a great start to the year at, at uh, Silverstone or Spa. But you know, on on from what we saw on Sunday uh, at the test it looks close again. You know, Le Mans is a different circuit. The cool temperatures of the first two races didn't help Aston on the Dunlops. And we saw last year that the car was really at its best when the when the conditions were much hotter. I'm expecting Aston to be there. Are you, Harry? Yeah, certainly they've been, they've been a little bit off in the first two races, but we did the test at Spa a few weeks ago and there was a, a whole truck of Dunlop tyres and... Uh, and uh, Daniel were, were testing the Le Mans spec tyres so they're, they're definitely pushing to catch up but certainly I think um, Michelin over the winter we did a lot of work a lot of testing over in Abu Dhabi and uh, I think we've, we've got a better product this year um, certainly a tyre that's more suited to our car so it's definitely intriguing and they've been off the pace in the first two races but they're they're very quick in a straight line Obviously, uh, that's going to be a big benefit at Le Mans, and um, they'll be there or thereabouts. And I think in the class, the the, the one unknown is is the Porsche, really new car for this year. Uh, hard to know what to make of it. They seem very competitive at the end of the races at Daytona and Sebring, and you know set the fastest lap at Spa, but didn't seem to be super competitive over a stint. And I think that's the big question mark: uh, whether that car will be fully unleashed. I'd imagine at Le Mans uh, we'll, I think we'll get the first true sign of quite how quick that car mm. is obviously did a lot of testing last year in preparation for this season because it was running like early in the year wasn't it so 
it's, it's it's not really a new car and it's also done a hell of a lot of racing already even though we're only in june because like you it's porsche have got two programs one in imsa and one in WEC. so i think porsche are going to be there you know you, you don't you don't make the investment that they've done by building a, a mid-engine car that they don't sell off for the road and then you know not be in the mix i'm I, i'm convinced they'll be there I guess the one thing we can be sure of with GT Pro is it will be a great race once it starts actually happening. It's always irritating in the build-up because it's all about the BOP, which is kind of the, the blessing and the curse, I guess, of, of this class of racing. Well, haven't we seen some great racing? You know, we saw some great racing between the Reese car and uh, the Fords last year. And think back, now I'm going to say what, what year it is. Do you remember the great uh, Ferrari-Chevrolet uh, battle, Bruni against Gavin? Uh, do you, um... it's, it's difficult to remember these because every big race, there's a GT-class battle like that. You see it in IMSA as well. Yeah, yeah. Just cars almost tied together just for hours. That could have been Daytona, Sebring for the last five well, years. Exactly, yeah. 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 I mean, you look even this year at, uh, at Spa, that you know that, that first couple of hours was four cars, nose to tail. I think, you know, at one point it was myself, Oli Pla and James Clado, three oppressed down the uh, Kemmel straight up to Le Con. Mm. Um, absolutely brilliant racing. So I think the... The preview to the race is always dominated by BOP and who's doing what. But once actually the the, the flag drops and and the race starts, and it's it's all just down to the battles. And let's hope they've got it right because uh, it certainly will be one of the highlights of them on this year. When the BOP process is sorted and when it's correct, BOP merges into the background. People don't talk about it, and that's my hope for this year: is that it won't be a topic of discussion because it's doing its job. That's optimistic, but we shall see. But no, the, the racing the racing will be great. We should mention the other GT class as well, GTE AM. There's 16 cars in that. Gary, can you just give a bit of an overview of how GTE AM differs from the main GTE Pro class? Well, it's a Pro-AM category, but it's more AM than Pro, whereas, of course, LMP2 is more Pro than AM. Um, the rules in LMP2 dictate that one of the free drivers must be an AM, and by AM I mean silver or bronze-rated dry- driver. In the, of the free drivers in a GTE AM car, two of them have to be AMs, and you must have at least one bronze. So that means that most of the lineup is made up of a bronze, a silver, and then a, a gold or or a platinum. And, of course, there are strict drive time rules on how much each uh, must do. So it really is. It's, you know, you could say that really P2 isn't Pro-Am, is it? It's sort of on the way there, whereas, you know, GTE-Am really is a Pro-Am category. It also means it tends to be quite a an amorphous kind of race from the outside to follow. It does settle down, but you often see these dramatic differences where usually people will start with their strongest driver. Mm. So it'll start off quite quite strong and then sort of get spread out and then well, we have seen at the end uh, a few massive reversals in gtm because the team that's been ahead hasn't done enough time with their am driver suddenly they've got to put their am back in and they're hemorrhaging time and the result changes you know in in the final stages because two years ago we also saw a massive uh, change uh, at the front in GTM, when the long-time leaders, the uh, the Aston driven by uh, Pedro Lamy, uh, Matthias Lauda and Paul Dallalana crashed out of the lead, I think with 40 minutes to go. Paul Dallalana, the, the sort of the backer of the car, if you like, who is a very good bronze, he made a mistake at the Ford chicane 
shunted, missed out on that elusive Le Mans win. Who are your tips for this year? Obviously, I think it was well, that, it was that car. It was well, Lamy that was fastest in the test, wasn't it? It was, and I'm going to say that car is is favourite for me for the simple reason that Dalalana is probably the best bronze, and Lauda is a very very strong silver. And you know, we know that Pedro Lamy is a is a great Le Mans driver who's been there, done it, driven all sorts of cars. Uh, and showed that at 40 whatever he still got the pace last weekend so for me they are they are favorites anyone else standing out there obviously you've got the same manufacturers you've got in gte pro with the exception of ford and then obviously you can't have the new porsche in it because it has to be the the older cars isn't it for gte well a, a bit of a um, sleeper is jmw for me because they've they've recruited will stevens and dries van tour well dries van tour is silver I wouldn't think he'd be silver for that much longer, would you, Ollie? No, I'm. I'm just looking through the lineup now, and uh, I didn't actually realise he was doing it. But he's a he's a very questionable silver. Yeah. Um. You know, he's shown what he can do in a GT car. Of course, Lawrence Fansworth's brother, younger brother, but it's uh, very quick. Mm-hmm. He'll be one to watch alongside Will Stevens. You know, again, just had his first race win with the Audi in Blancpain. So, um, you know that that also could be a very strong lineup. Yeah, I think you know, Jam W have been going to Le Mans for quite a few years now I think they're probably due a, a, a good result and yeah this this might be their year they're a very close-knit sort of typically British team and uh, I think they could uh, could maybe spring a surprise on pure speed I definitely expect them to challenge but I have to say I do agree with you the 98 Aston just because they've been together so long they mm. know each other they trust each other they've done Le Mans and as you say they got so close to winning yeah. that year I, I remember watching it and it was heartbreaking for him. So, you know, Do you know the story? No, I don't actually. Well, this is an interesting story. Uh, and I was told this by someone within, within Aston Martin, so I, I presume it's true. They basically ran out of tyres. So at the last stop, when Dalalana pitted, they had to put him on old tyres. The team asked, well, should we put Pedro in the car, given, you know, he's, he's the pro. Paul Dalalana said, no, I've been in the car for an hour. I, I'm happy to do it. And on his first, I think it was his outlap or his first flying lap, he uh, he shunted on the old tyres, which, you know, I was, I, I was gutted for him because he's such a nice guy and such a good peddler and, a, you know, a great supporter of the sport. And, and he, he shows amazing uh, success with his own personal success ballast. Not quite as much <laughs> as Ed, but, you know, he's a big old guy, isn't he? I'm just sandbagging. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he's certainly not small, but like you, you touched upon, one of the nicest guys in the pit lane, actually. And, um, you know, does an incredible job in the car as well. So, you know, hopefully we'd like be nice to see them, them up there at the end of the 24 hours. The other uh, Aston Martin car that I think is worth mentioning as well is the 90 TF Sport um, leading the LMS, uh, Sally Yolick, Ewan Hankey and uh, joined at Le Mans by Rob Bell. I mean, I think that's a pretty strong lineup. Um, I know uh, Ewan has been coaching Sally for for you know the last three or four years and he, he's his rise through the ranks has been very strong and, and fast and obviously you know rob bell needs no introduction especially at le mans and they're a you know a new team to gtm this year in in the lms and uh i i reckon they'll be there or thereabouts as well I'm, but i'm so impressed with tf you know they're building a really good reputation aren't they of their success in britain their success in you know the aco gt3 cup last year you know i i knew tom ferrier when he was a, a touring car driver doing 
I'm going to say it was European Touring Car Championship before it became uh, the World Championship. Good little peddler who ultimately didn't didn't sort of make it but you know he's obviously found a niche for himself as a as a team owner and he's doing a really good job yeah definitely i'm, I'm not sure 100 percent if they sort of share data and setups with the with the factory they do. car okay yeah so, because you can see yeah the, the way the setup is in the pit so clearly there's a lot right. of cross fertilization by the looks of it so that's another strong point i mean they can i mean certainly the the 98 car is is the standout favorite um not only for Le Mans but also for the whole championship in my opinion so they can also learn from from what they're doing in a, in a very similar way that you know the four fords um mm. learn from each other so um just an extra sort of positive tick in 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 their columns so it's going to be interesting well, it's a shame we haven't been able to go over every single car, but it would have taken us uh, some months. Probably you'd have to have, have left Le Mans by now. Everything gets underway on Wednesday in terms of the on-track action. Uh, we've got free practice and then qualifying in the evening. Then it happens again with qualifying the next day, then the race Saturday, Sunday. You'll be able to follow it all on autosport.com. Uh, we'll have all the news and features from there. Pick up this week's Autosport magazine, which has got the, the full event guide. We've got Gary Watkins talking about Toyota's Big Chance, interview with Nick Tandy, interview with Ollie Jarvis in-depth feature on on Ford and whether anyone can stop them obviously based on what we've seen so far it looks like it's going to be uh, quite a challenge uh, and then a look at all the teams a look back at 1967 and, and Ford's famous win there so there's going to be plenty in there for those who've, whose appetite's been whetted by by this podcast thank you very much to Gary Watkins thank you I'll wish you good luck for Le Mans as well because I've seen what the, the stress of Le Mans week does to you journalistically I know, yeah. must be tough sitting in hospitality all week <laughs> <laughs> The proper best of luck reserved for Ollie Jarvis. Thank you very much. And for Harry Tinknell, who will, uh, it's possible for both of them to win. Thanks Let's to hope the, so. That'd the be nice, wouldn't it? So thanks for joining us and thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. Social Podcast Network. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.